All right, well, um, my name is Ian McIntosh, and I am one of the members of our preaching task force team, and uh, we oftentimes will be doing alternate series with the preaching task force team, and right now uh, we're going to be doing number five in our alternate series, Jesus is Greater. So uh, what we're doing is comparing Jesus to the uh, Old Testament, some of the Old Testament people that are foreshadowing uh, who Jesus will be, basically, and we're showing how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of what they foreshadow. So this morning, we're going to be looking at how Jesus is the greater Noah. So um, I'm guessing that you know uh, a lot about Noah. <laughs> I'm a dad. I do dad puns. It's my thing, you know. But, but no, really, um, the, the story of Noah and the flood is uh, ubiquitous almost in our culture, right? It, it seems like you can't go anywhere in a church preschool without seeing a whole bunch of little play toys and storybooks and that kind of thing. You know, you, uh, the, we even have movies based on the, the story of the flood, you know, Evan Almighty. You know, raise your hand if you've seen Evan Almighty. Okay, good. So about half of you. Uh, it's not very biblically accurate, but it's a great story, you know. Uh, there's a lesser biblically accurate one with that guy and the rock monsters and the... No, I don't think it was Hugh Jackman. It was the guy that was... Thank you. Yeah, Russell Crowe. Yeah, I don't even know what that movie's called. It was a flop and, you know, there's a reason for that. But the point is that the story of Noah really is, you know, it's all around in our culture. In fact, not even our culture only, but in a lot of cultures, they have similar stories of a cataclysmic flood and someone who survived it on a boat or a ship or whatever. And, um, and, and so, I thought this morning, you know, in the spirit of going back to school eventually, uh, we, might <laughs> we, we might take a little quiz and see what you know about Noah. So you have a quiz there in your handout, and uh, if you don't, you can just track along with me mentally here. But, you know, in your, in your sermon little pamphlet there, uh, six, six true-false questions, okay? So um, there are no prizes, but you can have heaven points if you get 100% on this. Heaven points are redeemable um, at the pearly gates. They have, it looks like a Chuck E. Cheese counter and great, not really, that's, that's not true. Okay, but so true, false, right? Um, in other words, could you biblically support this statement? You know, what you know from the Bible, not from pop culture or whatever, but what you know from the Bible, is this a true statement? So let's go ahead and put the first one up there on the screen. Um, Noah was mocked by the sinful people in the world uh, around him while he built the ark. Okay, so a lot of you say that's true. If you think that's true, go ahead and circle the T there because that's how we take Ted, yeah. All right, num uh, number two. Uh, well, no, verbal answers are good too. Interaction is good in a classroom. And uh, so number two, um, true, false, Noah, his wife, and his kids and their wives were the only humans that survived the flood. Okay, I'm hearing some truth there, yeah. All right, number three, uh, there were only two of every kind of animal on the ark. Okay, I heard some false, and I heard a few truths there. Okay, yeah. Uh, number four, the animals came to Noah automatically, meaning he didn't have to chase them down. I heard false and true on that one. Okay, yeah. And number five, the flood lasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Also some true and false answers on that one. Okay. And lastly, um, God himself shut the door on the ark. Okay. 
Heard some truths on that one. So, are you ready to grade your quiz? Yeah, see if you get those heaven points. Noah was mocked by the sinful people uh, in the world around him. Um, The Bible doesn't actually state that overtly. Yeah, I was kind of weirded out when I saw that. Yeah, I, I looked and looked and looked. I even Googled it. And, but I did look in the Bible first. <laughs> I know the internet said it, so, but no. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, there are some inferences that we could maybe say, yeah, that probably happened, but it doesn't say that happened. So yeah. Um, number two, Noah, his wife, and his kids were the only humans that survived. Yep, that is true. Uh, number three, there were only two kinds of, or two of every kind of animal on the ark. Um, that is false. There were um, uh, at least two of every kind of animal, but he did bring other animals on, especially the clean animals for sacrifices and whatnot. So some of those, there were seven of those kind and and that kind of thing. So yeah, there we go. Yep, and uh, the animals came to Noah automatically. Yep, yep, somehow God led them to just kind of show up, you know, and, and, and that part of the movie Evan Almighty is true, therefore. Yeah, Hollywood leading you in biblical truth in that one instance. (laughs) Okay. Um, And the flood lasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Trick question. False, right. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Yeah, but the the flood lasted quite a bit longer than that. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, God himself shut the door on the ark. Uh, Yes, that is true. God shut the door. Yeah. Don't know how, but... But he did. The Bible says it very clearly. So, so we're going to take some time this morning and, and look at the story of the flood. And um, there is a whole lot that we're not going to unpack just for the sake of time. But I do hope that we'll be able to, uh, to see kind of the, the big picture of what God wants us to see through the flood and also through, um, through the person of Noah. And to really get that picture, it helps if we could zoom out a little, book, little bit and we'll actually start in... Uh, Genesis 3 with um, the, you know, the, the original sin. And um, I'm going to give you a big word here. We're kind of classroom theme today, right? So big word. Um, you could add this to your vocabulary section in your notebook. Proto-evangelium. Yeah, it's Latin and sounds smart. So, yeah. <laughs> it really just means the first good news. Okay, proto, like prototype first. Evangelium, like evangel, good news. Um, So it's the first good news. And we see this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is where um, Adam and Eve had sinned, you know, ate the fruit. They realized they were naked. They felt shame. God kind of questioned them with some some leading questions and then uh, led them to realizing, oh yeah, okay, we blew that one. And then God pronounces judgment, you know, for, to, to each one of them, to Adam and Eve and the serpent. And this is God pronouncing judgment uh, against the serpent. And so we see this in Genesis 3.15. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. So it's biblical, ladies, to be afraid of snakes. <laughs> Okay, so I'll put enmity between uh, your offspring and her offspring. He, notice the singular word there, he, her offspring, um, shall bruise your head, the serpent. Um, and I'm sorry, um, he, uh, I lost my place there, let's see, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
So uh, crushing the head is another term it uses in other translations. Um, a, a lot of theologians believe that this is God pronouncing and really foreshadowing, predicting um, the, the ultimate victory that Jesus would have over Satan, the serpent, right? Jesus, the offspring of Eve, um, crushed his head or bruised his head. Um, you know, Jesus received a temporary wound, right, a bruising on the heel of sorts, meaning he came back from the dead three days later and had ultimate victory over Satan. So a lot of people go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and say, see, the, the good news, the gospel of Jesus was foreshadowed even, even this early in the game, right? We have original sin, and we have a promise of a Savior at, at that moment, and so um, mankind was mired in their sin. They were stuck in that. And they were, they were looking forward to her offspring, Eve's offspring, bringing them ultimate deliverance from that sin, that curse. Okay? So, and we can trace that, I believe, uh, through uh, this early part of Genesis. Take a look at Genesis um, chapter 4 the very next chapter after that fall. You know, she had offspring, but it wasn't like the one, like the anointed one, the predicted one that, uh, that would save. So let's read Genesis chapter 4, uh, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Aha, offspring! We can be saved from the curse of the, of the serpent and, and, and all that, right? Um, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. Now, if you were here several weeks ago uh, when we were talking about Cain and Abel, you know that that story didn't work out the way they would have hoped, right? Eve's offspring did not deliver them from the curse of the serpent. In fact, sin increased, and we saw uh, the first recorded murder in the Bible there. So then we could also look at uh, Genesis uh, later on at the end of chapter 4, where it says that Eve had um, another child, you know, but still not the one. This was one that God gave her as a replacement, so to speak, but still not the one that would deliver them from the curse of the serpent. So let's read Genesis chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called him Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, um, also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that moment, and at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Which means that they probably weren't calling on the name of the Lord, at least like they should have been prior to that, right? So, a little hope now, right? Eve's offsprings, offspring, you know, leading people to call on the name of the Lord. So, does this mean, you know, here we go, we're going to be delivered from the curse and the serpent's going to be defeated? Uh, well, no, not yet, right? We know that, of course, but they're going through this progression of realizing that the, the curse is deeply embedded in them and they need an ultimate deliverer. So let's look at Genesis chapter 5, where we see um, maybe Noah could be the one that would deliver them. And, uh, and so let's read where it talks about Lamech um, naming Noah in Genesis chapter 5, verses 28 through 29. Uh, Lamech had lived 182 years and he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord had cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. 
Now remember, that was part of the curse, wasn't it? You know, that Adam would have to work hard to get a living from the ground, and there would be thorns and toil and the sweat of his brow. So Lamech, right, is thinking, well, hey, you know, um, there was that whole, he'll, you know, crush your head and you'll bruise his heel, offspring, Noah, maybe, maybe Noah's going to be the one. And, and in fact, the name Noah in Hebrew means relief. And so, so uh, I'm guessing that Lamech felt a need for relief from the curse and was hoping that his son might be the one. But he wasn't. We can see in Genesis chapter 6 that sin continued to spread like cancer. So let's take a look here in Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, I've been married for over 21 years, and um, I know that using superlatives, you can put that in your vocabulary section, um, those are words that mean like the ultimate, like definite, absolute, every time, kind of like, you know, never, always, you know, those kind of words. So I, I don't use superlatives too often. I won't say I never do because, you know, because there's that one time that I didn't, right? <laughs> And, and, but see, that's why so many, and this is free, by the way, completely off, you know, off notes and just whatever, but um, you can avoid so many conflicts if you don't use superlatives. Like, ladies, if you tell your husband, you always blah, 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 the first thing he's going to think is, no, there was that one time 10 years ago that I didn't, <laughs> Right? Guys, right? That's, that's yeah, yeah. And, and so, or, you know, men, it goes both ways, right? You know, like, so anyway, I would encourage you to not use superlatives in, unless you really mean it. So here, God uses superlatives all over the place in this, right? Every intention of man's heart was evil continually, only just heaping all these absolute superlatives big. There was evil, a lot of it, all over the place. No wonder Lamech felt a need for relief from the toil, for escape from the curse. And uh, we see that Noah is a foreshadow of Jesus who would bring, bring the ultimate relief and the ultimate escape from, from that curse. So um, I, I want to make it very clear that, you know, even though we have cute little flannel graph stories about Noah and the ark and the little the giraffes with their heads sticking out the window and, you know, those kind of things, um, it, it's a cute little children's story, I guess. But, um, but this was God pouring out his wrath on all of humanity. This was a big deal. This was God judging the world for their wickedness. That's, what, that's why it starts out there in Genesis chapter 6 in verse 5 and following. It says, God saw that man was wicked. And then it goes on and it says, um, that the, it says, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved his heart. God was grieved at, at the wickedness and he, he, he regretted what they were doing. And so the flood is God pouring out his wrath on that sin. 
And we don't really, that doesn't make it into the cute little flannel graph part of it, that like God was angry and pouring out wrath and, you know, that kind of thing. But think about like the, the worst possible uh, natural disaster, right? And, and all of the devastation that comes from those things. The, the tsunami, you know, a few years ago that, that hit Japan and just completely devastated you know, some major cities over there. Um, you know, uh, uh, bodies floating in the water, you know, that kind of, like, take that and make it global, and, and that's what this was, right? This was um, global devastation, judgment, like God killing humanity, except for these eight people. And God was going to rebuild the human race, starting with these eight people. And so I have four things that I want us to realize about God's judgment because you might be thinking right now, well, gosh, that doesn't sound like a very nice God. And do I really want to serve a God that would be that cruel and mean and judgmental and wrathful and angry and whatever? Um, It's important to understand the wrath of God. When, When I think about the wrath of God, I, in my mind anyway, it helps me if I understand it through the perspective of um, a child uh, finding safety and comfort in their strong dad. Now, I don't know what kind of dad you had growing up. Um, the dads that I had weren't always the, the, the perfect model of God that he would have wanted them to be. But I do know that there are people who, like let's say, um, you know, there's a bully at school who's you know, taking your lunch money and beating you up, right? Like kind of that archetypal storybook sort of idea. And then um, dad finds out about it. And dad goes over to that bully's house and has a conversation with his parents. Then if if I'm that kid that's getting picked on and my dad goes and talks to their parents, I'm going to be like, yeah, you just wait till my dad. Mm -hmm. My, my dad. My dad's strong. My dad's big. My dad's going to take care of you. You best look out. You know, like, <laughs> you, you, sure, you might have been beaten up on me and stuff and whatnot, but boy, when my dad finds out, mm-mm-mm. It's that kind of idea, you know? That, that's the wrath of God poured out on sin. And so, so we might, uh, as, um, as sinners who deserve that wrath, we might think, whoa, wait, I don't know if I like this whole wrath of God thing. But as someone who's been sinned against, or someone who has seen um, other people be sinned against, we can take comfort in the fact that God is going to pour out his wrath on sin. But we need a full picture of that wrath to really understand that. So the first thing I want us to see is that God's wrath is just. God's wrath is just. And uh, th- that just means it's it, it, like we deserve it, right? Um, uh, there's a, some would say that when, you, when a person is born, their default setting is hell, meaning we have inherited sin, we've inherited a fallen nature from Adam, and unless God intervenes and uh, enables us to, to receive what Jesus has done for us, then, then we are destined for hell. And Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if, if you want to go to heaven, just be as good as God, and you can go to heaven. But none of us can do that, right? Because we've inherited um, sin from Adam. And Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin are death. Um, I like that word wages. It's what we earn with our sin, right? 
Um, our sin has earned us death. And, and that's what God told Adam, don't eat the fruit, for when you eat it, you will surely die. And he didn't die right there on the spot, but he experienced death. And, uh, and it goes on and says, the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So we all deserve um, God's wrath. And, and I, could, you know, I could have put up another 50 passages up there that, that will show that we all deserve the wrath of God. So if that's something that you struggle with, then you know, open up your Bible app or Google and just you know, type in Scripture, wrath of God. And you'll be like, oh wow, there's a lot in there about me. We all deserve that. Okay, so God's wrath is just. Okay, number two, God's wrath is fearful or to be feared, frightening, that kind of idea, right? God's wrath is frightening. Um, Zephaniah chapter one, verses 14 through 18, um, Zephaniah is predicting the ultimate wrath of God being poured out on the earth. You know, and the prophets call it the great and terrible day of the Lord. So let's read his, uh, Zephaniah's description of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Uh, the great day of the Lord, the Lord is near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter the mighty men cry, uh, the, the mighty man cries aloud there. You know, like even the tough guys are afraid. That's, that's what he's saying there. Um, it's a day of wrath, or a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds, a day of the trumpet blast and a battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements, I will bring distress on mankind so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. The, their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. It's going to be a tough day, right? That's an understatement. God's wrath is something, you know, and you could also look at Luke chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 24 where it talks about, you know, in, in that day, you know, of distress, you know, you, it, it's bad, right? We should be afraid. Now, some people say, well, you know, um, isn't it kind of, kind of like, I don't know, not cool to, to accept Jesus just because you don't want to go to hell? I don't want to go to hell. <laughs> it's bad, <laughs> right? I, I don't want to experience that wrath. It's bad. Jesus is the way to escape that. Now, you know, obviously, if I'm only going to Jesus to get a, like, a get out of hell free card, and I really have no interest in him as a person, that's a problem, and we'll talk about that later. But being motivated to escape God's wrath, and so turning to Jesus as the escape of that wrath, I, I think that's good. It's good to escape God's wrath because his wrath is fearful. Okay, thirdly, his wrath is loving. Now, how could that be? His wrath is loving. You know, you might think of the, the parent, uh, the, the, you know, stereotypical statement, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you just before the parent whacks the, you know, does a little spanking or whatever. The kid's like, really? I don't think so. You know, but, but as a parent, I understand what that means, right? It's the idea that um, that because I love my kids, I don't want to inflict harm or pain, but I understand that correction is, is difficult but necessary. Okay, I get that, and that's what the parents mean when they say that, hopefully. 
Um, there's more to it than that when we talk about God's wrath being loving. In 1 John 4, 8, it says that God is love. Okay, so anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Therefore, anything that God does is loving because he is love. It is an intrinsic part of his character, which means him pouring out his wrath is his act of love. But now, how does that math out, right? So there's another passage that we should look at to maybe help balance that understanding. And we can see that in Romans 12, 19. Um, Paul says um, to the Roman church, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So God's wrath is loving because he is that dad that will go over to the bully's house and talk to his parents for me. That's his love for me. In other words, um, there is no sin committed against you or against me that God will not make right. His wrath is going to be poured out for every sin that has ever been committed against you. He will avenge. So I don't have to worry about avenging myself. And, and that wrath is either poured out on Jesus on the cross, for anyone who's sinned against me but is in Christ, Christ took that wrath. Anyone who has sinned against me but is not in Christ, they will experience uh, the ultimate wrath of God you know, in, in eternity. But that's not mine to worry about. I'm just trusting God to be who God is, and I know that he'll make it right. So his wrath is love because he is, um, you know, so many people get hung up on how could a good God let evil happen, blah, blah, blah. God makes it right in the end. His wrath is his justice in action. Okay. Uh, fourthly, his wrath is avoidable. And that's what I was hinting at when I was referring to, you know, either it's poured out on Jesus on the cross or in all of eternity. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we could have the righteousness of God. So, um, forgiveness in Christ is not a perversion of justice. And it took me a long time to wrap my head around that. Like, how, how is God just if he's punishing an innocent man for my sin? That doesn't seem very just. But Jesus became sin so that God's just wrath of my sin was poured out on Jesus. And, and when I accept the forgiveness that he's offering me, then I can escape his wrath because it's already been taken care of. So that's, that's the idea there in a nutshell. Okay, so the, the flood was God's wrath poured out on humankind because of their sin. So let's take a look now at Noah. That was the flood. Now we'll look at Noah. Um, just a few things about Noah. Uh, he is a, um, he foreshadows Jesus, but we see him as a second Adam of sorts. Um, in, in Genesis 1.28, uh, after creation, God um, blessed Adam and Eve and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Uh, God told um, 
Noah and his family pretty much the same thing in Genesis chapter 9 uh, when, when they got out of the ark. Yeah, so there's Genesis 1:28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then when they left the ark in Genesis 9:1, it says God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Sounds pretty familiar, right? So Noah is like a second Adam in that sense. But Jesus is, is like the real second Adam. And uh, we see this idea of a second Adam, which is really that the offspring of Eve, right? The one that would free them from the curse, fulfill the proto-evangelium. There's that big word for you. Um, in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, Paul, and you could also look at Romans 5, 18 through 19 if you want more to look at there. But in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, Paul says, for um, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ um, all shall be made alive. So um, Jesus is the second Adam, right? Adam gave us death, Jesus gives us life. So Jesus is the antidote of Adam. He's the fulfillment, he's the second one. Um, he was all, um, one, one, one very important thing to know about that, um, Noah was not perfect, right? We'll get to that in a moment here, but um, Noah did obey God, and Noah built the ark and you know, preserved humankind and whatnot, but he was flawed, he was sinful, and so he could not save us from the curse. But Jesus was perfect, and um, we're not going to look at a whole bunch of scriptures there for the sake of time, but you, you have them in your notes if you want to look at them later on. Jesus was without sin. He was the sinless and is the sinless Son of God. So it's, just, it's important to understand he's the better second Adam. One reason is because he was not um, burdened with sin like Noah was. You, in Noah, the curse was still present. We see that in um, Genesis chapter 9, verses 20 through 28. Uh, the story there is after the, the flood, you know, they get out of the uh, they get out of the ark, and uh, eventually Noah plants a vineyard and uh, discovers how fermentation takes place and consumes too much alcohol and gets drunk, and his kids see him, and, and the, the Bible says that they uncovered his nakedness, a whole lot of, you know, various ideas of what that means exactly, but they were dishonoring to him, and one of them mocked him, and the other two covered his shame, and um, and Noah you know, woke up the next morning and probably not in a good mood and, um, and blessed the two and cursed the offspring of the, of the one that made fun of him. So, so that's a very short version of that story. But um, what I want you to see is the parallel, again, between Adam and, um, and Noah. You know, and Adam was told, you know, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. So it was Noah. But, but even in this story of Noah's sin, you know, because we would think, we're hoping that sin is done with, right? God judged sin. God poured his wrath out on humanity. Clean slate, the earth is wiped out, and just these few people left that love God, right? So it'll be better this time. Very next story, and it's not better. The curse is still there. So there's this parallel. In, in, um, in Genesis, Adam is in, in a garden-like environment, the Garden of 
Eden that God made for him. And Noah, in a sense, plants a garden. Okay, in, in the early part of Genesis, we see that Adam um, eats the fruit. And here we see Noah, um, well, drinking the fruit, too much of it. And, uh, and then we see in, in Genesis chapter 3 that Adam feels shame. Okay, and we see also that Noah experiences shame. So there's a very clear parallel there uh, in, in, the, in the fall taking place again. It was like humanity fell again. It's like the second original sin. By the way, again, not in the notes, it's a freebie. The whole idea of experiencing shame, uh, there are some subsects within Christianity that, that are big on saying that if you feel shame, that's from Satan, and that you should reject that and embrace your identity in, in Christ and like, you know, uh, guilt or conviction comes from God, but shame, shame comes from Satan. And um, I do think that's partially true, but I think it's overstated and misunderstood. Because in both these stories with Adam and Noah, shame is a result of their sin. So, shame comes from sin. So if I sin and then I feel shame... Should I just dismiss that shame and say, well, no, that's from Satan. I don't need, because I'm a child of God. Yeah, but I did this horrible thing that displeases God. And, and so I feel shame. So rather than just dismiss that as, oh, that comes from Satan, he's attacking me, I should let that shame lead me to ask for forgiveness and escape the, the guilt, right? So shame and guilt are kind of synonymous in that way. So anyway, if anyone, you know, if you hear someone say, oh no, shame comes from, the, from the, the, the devil, just like reject that and embrace your identity in Christ. Yeah, that's true, but shame can come from sin and I need to repent. So just throwing that out there. Okay. So as the second Adam, Jesus perfectly fulfills what is foreshadowed in Genesis 3.15, that proto-evangelium. And, and I see this in three ways. One is that uh, he defeats the serpent. A second way is that he gives us freedom from the curse. And a third way is that he gives us escape from God's wrath. So these are three clear ways that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of what people were looking for, right? The, the reason Lamech named Noah Noah was because he wanted relief from the curse. Noah did not ultimately bring relief from the curse for mankind. Jesus did. So then how should we respond to that? Well, we've got three quick ways here that we can look at. One is it's important to note that, um, uh, that Noah preached righteousness to the wicked world around him. Now, we too can preach righteousness to the wicked world around us. We can do that by the way that we live. We can live righteously. We can let God's rightness be on display for the world to see, and hopefully they will be attracted to, to him in us as we do that. We should do it with love. Uh, but we can also use words, right? It's good to actually preach righteousness, which doesn't mean you're a horrible sinner, repent, you evil, wicked person, but it, it means saying, hey, um, there is none righteous, no, not one. 
we all need the righteousness of God. Could I share with you how to escape your own unrighteousness and receive his? You know, or however you feel led to say that. Second um, Peter 2, 5 says, um, if he, God, did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So Noah was this herald of righteousness. And that's one of the verses that we, we look at when we see people you know, assume that Noah was mocked by the wicked world around him while he was building the ark. You know, this is one of those passages that leads people to that conclusion. But the point is that, that Noah was somehow preaching righteousness. So I, I want to somehow preach righteousness. So um, let, let's skip up to um, 2 Peter 3, 9. And, uh, and we're going to look at this verse where Peter directly gives us the responsibility uh, to be preaching righteousness. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you. Peter is talking to believers here. Patient towards you, not wishing that any would perish, but that all would reach repentance. So think about the people in your life that do not know of the grace that Jesus offers. Apparently, one of the reasons that God has not come back and judged the world a second time through fire is because he's waiting for us to tell those people about Jesus. God is patient towards you, not wanting any to perish. Right? So whether it's the Turners over on the other side of the world or whether it's me on the other side of the street, we have a job of proclaiming this good news to people. Okay, so another way that we can respond, um, it says Noah responded to the coming judgment with obedient faith. So for you, that response might simply mean receiving the grace that Jesus is offering you so that you could escape that wrath. It might also mean obeying those other things that he's told you to do. I don't know what they are. I mean, the Bible has a lot of things that God's told us to do and not do. Uh, there might also be um, uh, like a, just something that he puts on your heart to do or to not do. But responding with obedience and in faith is important as we, as we walk towards Christ. Now, the initial response of faith in receiving that salvation, that, you know, that's good. And it, it's not as though I need to try to earn or keep that salvation by always being obedient. But I can tell you, life will be a lot better if I respond with obedient faith. Okay. So, uh, third and finally here, um, only Jesus can offer escape from God's wrath because he took it. And uh, for the sake of time, we won't look at those passages in your notes there, the 1 John 2.2 2 and the uh, 1 John 4.10. Uh, they talk about Jesus taking the wrath of God so that we could escape it. So I want to leave you um, with one thought, which would be, uh, what does it look like for me to walk that out in a daily basis? For a lot of people who um, have placed their faith in Christ, um, the gospel, the good news, is something that they heard and, and agreed to and accepted some time ago, and then they went on with their life. 
But I would, I would encourage you to consider what does it mean for me to live the gospel every day? When I'm, when I'm parenting my kids and I see the, the remnant of um, the fallen nature of man in my kids, which is very rare, but it does happen occasionally. <laughs> How do I respond with the gospel? Or when, uh, when I have an idiot moment as a husband and say something I shouldn't say, how do I respond in light of the gospel? When life is getting too much for me and I just don't feel like I can keep up with it, how do I respond in light of the fact that Jesus died to free me from the curse? See, the, Jesus hanging on the cross is not a one-time thing I need to agree to. It, it's an everyday life reality that I need to live out. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you that you, that you sent your son to free each one of us from the curse so that we could so that we could know you, so that we could enjoy you. And God, I pray that you would enable each one of us to live that out in the way that you're calling us to. Lord, we can't do that on our own. We need your help to do it. So Lord, I pray that, uh, that you would give us the grace that we need in our time of need. And thank you that, that you did free us from sin. Thank you that I don't have to experience your wrath. And God, if there's anyone here that needs to receive that, that forgiveness from you, I pray that you would um, enable them to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.